0: That's bluenile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 176, Michael Psellos with Peter Adamson. A title which really should read, With Peter Adamson from the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, but that was a bit too long. Yes, today we hear an interview with Peter Adamson, and for those of you who don't know him, he is a philosophy professor and fellow history podcaster. If you're even a tiny bit interested in philosophy, then go check out historyofphilosophy.net and have a look at the hundreds of episodes he's produced on the history of philosophy from across the world. Today, I'm going to ask him primarily about Michael Psellos, the courtier and historian who is our most intimate source for the narrative going forward. But Michael was also a polymath who Peter and many others describe as the greatest intellectual Byzantium ever produced. And so Peter will tell us about his other works, and particularly his relationship with philosophy. There are two other characters I should mention before we get started. John of Damascus comes up a couple of times. John was one of the few Byzantine figures that we've discussed who lived in the Caliphate. He wrote during the 8th century and was heavily involved during the debate over iconoclasm, and he's also one of our witnesses to the actual behaviour and beliefs of early Muslims. The second figure is Anna Komnini, or Anna Komnina, as you may think of her. The next century of narrative will be dominated by the slow collapse of Byzantium's borders, and the man who will pick up the pieces after Manzikert is Alexius Komnenos, Anna is his daughter and wrote the famous history, the Alexiad, about his time in power. Now, here's the interview. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the History of Byzantium.
1: Hello. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm a huge fan of your series, so I'm very thrilled to be on as a guest.
0: Well, what a, what a great start. <laughs> um, I am also a huge fan of of the history of philosophy without any gaps, (laughs) and you've got to get it all in there. And um, I will, of course, be recommending people check out the whole series on Byzantine philosophy. But uh, let me pick your brain today on some specific topics. Obviously, we're going to want to talk primarily about Michael Selos, um, our key witness for the next century of narrative. But uh, we've got you here. Let's start with... A little more general about the role of philosophy in Byzantine culture. I think a casual observer might think there was no philosophy in Byzantium, just theology. Can you tell us more about the situation?
1: That's actually a somewhat disputed point, in that some experts on Byzantine intellectual history actually would agree with that kind of common conception that probably there wasn't very much philosophy in Byzantium. And certainly, if you look at secondary literature on the history of philosophy, you can pick histories of philosophy off the shelf that don't cover Byzantium at all, or only mention it as a conduit for ancient Greek texts to the Latin-speaking world. So obviously, one thing about Byzantium that's indisputably very important for the history of philosophy is that it was in Constantinople that all of the Greek manuscripts were made that allow us to read authors like Plato and Aristotle, and also later figures like, say, Plotinus and Proclus. We can read them in Greek today because of the manuscripts that were made in Constantinople. So the question is really whether there was any interesting philosophical activity going on on the part of the Byzantines themselves, or whether they were just transmitting this older wisdom to us, sort of like, you know, carrying on the torch and handing the torch on without doing anything further yeah and i think there are various views you could take on this question and it really depends how broad your definition of philosophy is if you think about philosophy as a kind of fairly limited narrow genre of writing then you're probably going to think that the extent of philosophy in Byzantium is in fact rather small and consists mostly of commentaries on ancient Greek philosophical works, especially Aristotle, because already in late antiquity, Aristotle was the basis for the philosophical curriculum of teaching. So you have commentaries that were done from actually in, including the period we're about to be talking about in a circle of scholars that were gathered around Comnena uh, So they actually had this project of commenting on Aristotle, Aristotelian works that hadn't already been commented on in late antiquity, and they were kind of filling in the gaps, so to speak. So you could say, well, that's pretty much what philosophy in Byzantium is. And that would be a pretty narrow and disappointing harvest because those commentaries aren't totally without interest, but they're not you know, brilliant, independent treatises. Uh, As listeners to my series know i have a very broad conception of what is philosophy and i think that it's a mistake to define philosophy that narrowly as basically just aristotelianism in this period so one thing that we need to realize here is that the byzantines just like the latin christians so if you think about someone like aquinas for example in latin christendom these people are theologians who believe that philosophy and theology are rather continuous. In other words, you would start understanding theology by doing a bunch of philosophy and then kind of carry on into theology, and it may or may not be clear where the line is between philosophy and theology. A great example of this is that in a somewhat earlier figure, John of Damascus, we have a huge treatise on theology which incorporates massive amounts of ancient Logic and other uh, aspects of ancient philosophy because he thinks that you need to understand all this philosophical material in order to be a good theologian And then throughout the whole Byzantine period you see many theologians drawing heavily on the philosophical tradition to deal with theological topics an example of that would be that when they talk about say the incarnation of Christ or of, of God in Christ they have to understand how humanity and divinity are related to each other. So then they have to say, okay, well, what is humanity? Well, humanity is a universal property, which is found in all humans. Well, what does that mean? What is this universal property? And suddenly they're doing metaphysics, right? So they, they kind of have to do philosophical, serious philosophical work in order to do theology. So that's one reason why you might take some of this theological material seriously as philosophy. Another thing that's worth bearing in mind is the way the Byzantines themselves use the word philosophy is actually broader than just, say, commentaries on Aristotle. So including in Michael Psalos, but it's actually a very general phenomenon. It's also in John of Damascus. It's in late ancient church fathers and so on. You often see the word philosophy being used to mean something more like committing your life to virtue and wisdom, which can be presented in a very Christian way. So for example, Selos says that his mother who he describes as this kind of champion Christian athlete of virtue, she, he says that he has trouble himself following her quote philosophy. And what he means by that is her ascetic pious lifestyle. Um, you also sometimes see Byzantine theologians describing Christian wisdom itself as philosophy. So I think we need to be aware that the way they use the word philosophy isn't necessarily the way we use philosophy. And then the last thing I would say about this, bringing this rather long answer to an end (laughs) Mm. is that, um, often there are discussions in Byzantium that they didn't think of as philosophical at all, or they at least they didn't necessarily think of them as philosophical discussions, but they just turn out to be really philosophically interesting. And my favorite example of this is something you've talked a lot about on the podcast, which is iconoclasm. So that on, at the first glance, that looks like a purely theological, religious, and also political dispute, right? And when you were covering iconoclasm in your podcast, you didn't present it as a philosophical debate right you presented Mm -hmm. it as a political and religious debate but actually if you step back for a minute and think about what they were really disputing there the core of that argument is the question how does an image relate to the thing of which it is an image so how does it relate to its exemplar or the thing that's depicted in the image because if the image as by being a representation of a saint or of Christ is just a kind of conduit through which you can reach the original thing, then it's okay to venerate the image because actually you're just venerating the person depicted. Right. Yeah. But if the image is a thing in its own right, so to speak, then you might think it's inappropriate to venerate it. And this is exactly the core of the debate over icons but it's also exactly the core of a very standard question in aesthetics which is basically some, how does something like a painting represent or relate to the thing that it depicts
0: it's interesting just um listening to your your penultimate point about the role of philosophy in the lives in the lives of theologians in a way i think some listeners Will recall uh, John Chrysostom, who had, you know, a full Hellenic education, um, including, I would, I would guess, a a low level philosophy. But he certainly used that education to um, uh, infuse his understanding and explanation of theology, and then referred to Christianity as the true philosophy. So that, yeah, that background was pretty consistent
1: for educated Byzantines across the. The millennium. Um, yeah, and actually, I mean, Christophson is obviously a, a major figure in the history of Greek rhetoric and yes. uh, literature. And it's also worth bearing in mind that they, it, there's a very close cultural connection between rhetoric and philosophy, because these are both sciences or traditions that go back to antiquity. And often it's the same authors who are relevant in both cases. So, um, one of the greatest figures from the byzantine point of view for rhetoric would be plato i mean he's the paradigm author for great greek so they are reading plato in part just because he writes such nice greek he's this paradigmatic figure for them sort of the, the sets the standard for what good classical attic greek is and because they're reading him for stylistic reasons they may or may not actually get, get interested in the philosophical content of the dialogues. So someone like Salos or Italos gets really drawn into the philosophy, but there are other scholars in Byzantium who are happy to just sort of stay at the level of language there. Yeah.
0: You mentioned um, Anna Komnina um, early on in your answer there. Um, she's, she plays an important role in... Uh, as you were talking about the development and the preservation of philosophical texts.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about her and the role she played? Sure. So she's actually a little bit later than Solos, who we're going to be talking about. So she dies in the 1150s, and she was a very highly placed aristocrat who actually may have had ambitions of ruling together with her husband. She's the daughter of an emperor, the Emperor Alexios First Komnenos, uh and she wrote not a philosophical work but a major historical work that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with called the Alexiad and this is a huge historical epic in which she describes her father's rule his wars his deeds his character um and actually in it, including in the preface to the whole work, she mentions that she's interested in philosophy. So she, she says, I'm learned in rhetoric in the Greek language, and I've also studied Plato and Aristotle. She says that explicitly, and she occasionally alludes to Aristotle, especially uh, in the course of the Alexiad. We unfortunately don't have any philosophical works by her, but we know that she gathered together several scholars uh, who she apparently asked to write commentaries on works of Aristotle, especially the works that didn't have commentaries already. And this actually kind of surprisingly includes what we think of as one of Aristotle's most important treatises, which is the Nicomachean Ethics. Which is, I mean, if people go to college and study just one work by Aristotle, it's pretty likely to be the Ethics. But the late ancient commentators apparently didn't, rate it so highly, or at least it didn't fit into their teaching curriculum as well as it does into ours. So there was a very partial commentary on part of the ethics, but the rest was not commented on. And this was kind of a team production of this group of scholars. So we have uh, more than one commentator writing comments on different books of the ethics. One of the men who did that, Michael of Ephesus, also wrote commentaries on a number of other works by Aristotle, including his zoological works. This is actually the first time anyone had commented on the zoological works since Aristotle had written them. Um, so it was a kind of uh, revival of interest in that aspect of his scientific output. Um, and we have good evidence that this w- that Anna really was a kind of director of this project, in part because in the ethics commentary there's an apparent reference to her as the patron also there's a funeral oration in honor of anna in which it mentions her interests in scholarship and her role in uh gathering together these scholars so we're pretty sure about her importance in the history of philosophy even though she didn't actually write any philosophical works
0: yeah and this is one of the uh... Uh, the things I, I need to um, educate the the listeners on as we go forward that um, we tend to think of the Byzantine world going into decline or collapsing when the um, Turks begin to uh, annex Anatolia in the in the 1070s, and actually uh, the economy and culture of the rest of the empire, from our perspective, continued to develop. And so this is in some ways a high point of you know the literary world of Byzantium. So speaking of which, uh, <laughs> uh, Michael Spilos uh, had a huge role to play in uh, the development of literature and philosophy in Byzantium. And of course, our interest in him so far has largely been as a writer of history. Can you remind listeners just who he is and talk a little bit about what he wrote?
1: He's arguably the greatest intellectual of the entire Byzantine historical period. Uh, He dies after 1081. So around the time you were just uh, mentioning. And so his life really uh, goes through the period you're about to be covering in the podcast. So that's, I guess, why we're doing this interview now. Uh, And he was, again, highly placed, not as highly placed as Anna because he's not a royal personage, but he was an advisor and confidant of several emperors he was particularly close to Constantine the Ninth Monomachos, who reigned from 1042 to 1055. And uh, Constantine is just one of many emperors that he got close to and was able to impress with his uh, fancy rhetoric and gift for uh, elegant, stylistic Greek. Uh, he talks about how he was able to um, bring uh, these rulers to such a pitch of admiration that they almost embraced him and started showering him with kisses. So it's a very kind of intense description of how rhetoric could affect people. Mm -hmm. And um, I think actually that is probably the right way to think about Psalos. I mean, his output is absolutely gargantuan. So he's um, one of the figures from the entire history of Greek literature for whom we have the most material. We have I think something like around 1,800 manuscripts of Pselos, and those cover hundreds and hundreds of works, many of which are much shorter than the Chronographia. Um, The Chronographia is quite a long work, Um, but he didn't only write history. And in fact, um, maybe going forward, when your listeners hear you referring to Pselos, they should probably realize or sort of bear in mind that this is not a figure like, say, Thucydides' he's he's not someone who's only writing history or who only has come down to us as a historian. It's true that his work on history, the chronographia, and also this other synopsis of history that he wrote, it, so it's true that he's one of the most important uh, sources for Byzantine history, but he's also someone who um, wrote on many, many other topics. And in fact, history, I would say, if anything, is a minor interest of his. His major interest is really... Greek language and style, I would say. And it's really that that leads him to write in all of these other areas. And these this would include philosophy. So he writes, uh, like I said, he comments on Aristotle. He writes independent treatises on various topics. He also writes a lot of letters which have come down to us, which tell us a lot about the kind of old boys network of aristocratic men who are highly placed in the society of Constantinople. Um, he also talks a lot about himself much more than we have for almost any other Byzantine intellectual. Uh, partially this comes out of his letters, partially it comes out of his talking about his own uh, relationship to powerful figure, figures in the chronographia. Uh, he also wrote an encomium for his deceased mother where he talks about his own family and he gives us a lot of information about himself. In the process of doing that so we know a lot about him we have a very vivid sense of his personality and we have this astounding uh kind of range of literary output from him which i would say has really been explored by scholars modern day scholars in only a very partial way so i mean there's room for people to keep working on Salos for decades to come and that includes his philosophy so in, in philosophy. He's very strongly influenced by Neoplatonism, which is this tradition of thought that we get in late antiquity, where they kind of synthesize different traditions of the earlier Greek philosophical tradition. And that's interesting because it's often this this material is often very explicitly pagan, so he has to somehow come to grips with that. Um, he also writes on theology. He's a he's a good example of actually of something I mentioned earlier, which is that. Byzantine authors seem to see philosophy and theology as being rather continuous with each other, whereas we tend to think of them as opposed or as two very uh, starkly different options. For them, it's kind of all just one enterprise of coming to understand the world around us and and God's relationship to it. So he's a very uh, multifaceted, difficult author. Also, by the way, his Greek's not easy to read because it's self-consciously very Uh, highly stylized and rhetorically charged. So he uses very difficult vocabulary, very complex sentence structure. So you really have to be quite an expert in ancient Greek in order to read And And like a lot of
0: sort of very intelligent people in the ancient world, he's just a polymath. He's just interested in every subject available. He's not specializing the way we think of today. Yeah, that's right. Let's just talk a little bit more about the the Chronographia, which is um, obviously his history, where he talks about fourteen um, different emperors that he's either met or um, heard a lot about, and he. It's it's quite a different um, work than other Byzantine histories. You know, the ones the listeners are most familiar with are Procopius, which is. Um, you know, a, a, a narrative giving you the story, a bit like the podcast of what's going on and events happening across the empire. Then we moved into chronicles, where we just get a list of what happens each year, um, like the work by by Theophanes. Um, the Chronographia very different; lots of events are just ignored or referenced in passing, and we get these character sketches. So this is what the emperor is like, and here's some examples of his behaviour and that sort of thing. Um, could you, you know, tell us more about what you think inspired this work and um, how do you see it fitting into his wider interests and wider body of work?
1: I think the first thing to realize about the chronographia is that, as I was just saying, it's an extension of his general approach to writing in all fields. In other words, He's someone who looks back to ancient literature in all of its various genres and wants to kind of imitate or carry on what he sees as the literary achievement of ancient Greek culture, Hellenic culture, so often pagan culture. And like other historians, he would see as forerunners the great figures of ancient Greek history and late ancient history, so going all the way back to Herodotus and Thucydides. And part of what he's trying to do, like other historians did, is to just continue on the uh, kind of baton race of historians. So often what you have in Byzantine histories is that they will summarize or even just quote older histories. And then when they get to the point where the most recent histories have ended, they add a bit more to bring the story up to the present day. Obviously, though, as you say, Pselos is doing something more than that, or at least different from that. For one thing, it's much more original. I mean, he's not just recapitulating or summarizing other histories. And also, as you said, you get this really kind of personal approach where we get these character profiles of all these different emperors. We also get a lot about Pselos himself and how he relates to them, which is one reason we know so much about him. And it would be tempting to think, oh, well, this is just because Pselos was such an original genius and he's doing something completely different that we've never seen in history writing before. I think he was an original genius, but it's still the case that there is an earlier parallel for what he's doing. And this would be in Plutarch. So Plutarch is a late ancient Platonist, actually, like Pselos, who wrote a work called The Parallel Lives in which he juxtaposes Greek and Latin uh, emperors, so or Greek and Latin figures, ma- major historical figures. Uh, so it, what Plutarch apparently was trying to do was sort of show that a certain character type emerged in both cultures, and then he compares uh, these pairs of figures in order to bring out this character type and how it can emerge onto world history. So those doesn't do the pairing, of, you know, two figures in each chapter or whatever, but he does uh, have a similar interest in the character of individual rulers and how that character kind of played itself out on the world stage. And an interesting thing about him, and again, a kind of unusual thing about him, is that he doesn't do what you might expect a Christian Byzantine to do, which is just to say effectively, the more pious and Christian the emperor, the better the results. If anything, he has a tendency to kind of admit that emperors need to get their hands dirty and sometimes they need to be a little bit brutal and not so high-minded if they really wanna be effective. So you could even think about comparing Solos in this aspect of his work to someone like Machiavelli, and which is a comparison that some people have made on the other hand, I think it's undeniable that his evaluations of various emperors often seem to be strikingly closely uh, or strikingly uh, influenced by how close and productive his relationship was with each emperor. So he really likes the emperors who supported him, and he's not so crazy about the other emperors. Yeah. So it's very much seen from his point of view. And in a way, you could think of the chronographia as a kind of eyewitness perspective on this period of Byzantine history, which of course is very uh, interesting, but means that it has to be treated with caution as a source for historical information, because to a large extent, what we're getting here is a kind of self-justifying and self-interested portrayal of Byzantine political life from the point of view of someone who was very much bound up with what was going on. So it's a very biased, partial account by a very brilliant guy. Um, So, I mean, actually, this this is the kind of irony of drawing on such historical sources is that the modern historian would probably rather have works that were written by people who weren't so interesting Mm -hmm. and weren't so well connected, right? Because, I mean, of course, the connection gives them uh, this kind of special insight or or the ability to report as a firsthand witness what happened. But it also means that they're constantly trying to construct events so that they come out of it as well as possible. Yeah. So, so, so this is kind of a mixed bag in that way as a source for modern history. And how do you see
0: philosophy uh, in his work? How, how does it fit into his
1: wider thoughts On philosophical topics well i mean like i say just as history is just one feather in his or one arrow in his quiver so philosophy is another arrow in his quiver and he is drawn into it i think because he's drawn to figures like plato as great stylists but i think it actually goes beyond that because he actually he tells us that his favorite philosopher, the one who inspires him most, is Proclus, who's a late ancient and very explicitly pagan philosopher, uh, Neoplatonist, uh, who he thinks of as like the, the greatest um, figure in the history of um, pre-Byzantine philosophy. Uh, by the way, it maybe should also be said that, at least according to Pselos, Byzantine philosophy doesn't really seem to be a thing as far as he's concerned. So he really only thinks about philosophy as an ancient and late ancient phenomenon. He doesn't make any attempt to position himself relative to earlier Byzantine uh, thinkers or people we might classify as Byzantine. So, for example, Photius, who is a scholar a few generations back from Solos, um, Solos isn't interested in trying to kind of tell a continuous story of history, of philosophy that goes all the way from Plato to himself. He really definitely looks back, back to philosophy in The Pagans. However, he also very greatly admires certain Greek theologians from late antiquity, especially the Cappadocians, and especially Gregory Nazianzus, who he thinks is the greatest of all Greek stylists, actually. So he he admires him both as a theologian and as a a writer of Greek language and goes on and on about how great Gregory is as a writer and why his writing is so brilliant. So um, again, philosophy for him is something that's just really continuous with a lot of his other interests. So it's, it's continuous with rhetoric. It's continuous with theology. um, And in in a way it's even continuous with history because he thinks that um, there's a, there's a kind of, temptation that a lot of philosophers and theologians have, which is only to think about intellectual matters and, uh, like only do metaphysics and think about the Trinity and things like that. And although he does find those topics interesting, he often talks about himself as someone who sort of lives both in the world and in intellectual life. So he's both a politician, uh, and a philosopher both a rhetorician and a metaphysician and theologian, if you like. Um, and he actually, I think this is a really uh, important thing about Solos, is that he, he really wanted to resist the idea that you had to choose between the life of a pure ascetic who's withdrawn from the world and spends all their time thinking about God on the one hand, or on the other hand, being an engaged political actor uh, who maybe does rhetoric because you need rhetoric in order to give convincing speeches. He wanted to do both. So, and in fact, uh, in some of his letters, for example, he writes to his students that he wanted to draw them into both rhetoric and philosophy and kind of give them the ability to do both things. Similarly, uh, his attitude towards Christian asceticism, so this idea that you should withdraw from all pleasures, you know, seek chastity and so on, Psyllus actually spent part of his life as a monk, a fairly short part of his life as a monk, and that evidently didn't suit him at all. So he really wanted to be out in the world enjoying life, enjoying the pleasures of the body, while also being this very ambitious intellectual.
0: It's an interesting life, um, particularly in the wider context of, of Byzantine history writers. Um, something I wanted to draw on that you mentioned earlier was the the idea that, uh, you know, Theophanes, the, in his chronicle, we get the portrayal of all the iconoclast emperors as heretics and bad people. And you kind of talked about that, that that was a pattern that the more pious an emperor was, the better. And um, that Celos Spel- uh, really goes against that, partly, as you say, in his in his own personal attitude to ascetic practice. But that means... He's encouraging, you know, slightly unchristian behavior in emperors. He he admires Basil II, basically, for um, poisoning his enemies, if he did, um, and for generally being, uh, you know, constantly on campaign, looking to use military force to uh, shore up the empire. And so he's espousing quite what we might think of as unchristian ideals, and he is, as you say, dealing with... Pagan philosophy all the time. Um, now, this is not something that's come up a lot in the podcast. The uh, um, for a long time, the idea that um, a high up official who is clearly a practicing Christian and is part of the a very orthodox regime would be talking positively about non Christian authors and figures. Um, can you talk about how he handles pagan concepts in his writing, and and whether there were consequences for this in in the real world?
1: Yeah, there are definitely consequences, but not so much for him. (laughs) So the really famous case is with John Italos, who's a student of his. And as his name implies, John Italos was from Italy. He comes to Constantinople to study Greek philosophy, uh, gets attached to Psalos and writes commentaries on Aristotle and other philosophical works. And Italos was actually uh, charged with heretical teachings or at least unorthodox teachings and some of his views were condemned so he was anathematized would be the technical term and we actually have the document in which a list of his supposed doctrines is given and it says let anyone who says these things be anathema Uh, it's not quite clear what happened to him after that it may be that he was sort of restored to favor to some extent later on But he's someone who really ran into trouble with the authorities for his philosophical teachings, apparently. It has to be said that the list of anathematized doctrines doesn't even fit very well with the works that we have by him. So it looks like they distorted his teachings uh, and just ascribed all kinds of things to him that uh, they didn't like. So, for example, um, they ascribe to him unconventional or unorthodox views on the icons, but you sort of get the impression that's just what happened to everybody in this period. If someone wanted to get you in trouble, they would say that you had unacceptable views on icons, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And in fact, I tend to think with some other scholars that Itzalos was condemned more for political reasons than for intellectual reasons. So the fact that he was Italian may have had something to do with this, for example, Um, sort of like pointing to a foreigner at a time when there was tension with military forces coming from exactly that area of Europe. That may have been an issue. It may have been just an attempt by the emperor to move against this intellectual class that was rising in Constantinople and sort of put, put them in their place. And it's actually very striking that Psalos doesn't seem to have gotten in trouble at all, and w- w- at least not in the way that Italos did. Um, so in the, to the extent that Salos ever had any trouble, it was always because he was on the wrong side of whatever political dispute was going on. And he was actually apparently a very cunning and subtle survivor in the dog-eat-dog world of Constantinople politics, uh, whereas Italos was apparently a much less kind of urbane, charming guy. So Anna Komnina really liked Psalos. She draws on him a lot in her own history writing, whereas she's pretty unkind about Italos. So she says that he was this really irascible uh, figure who was always getting into fights with people and trying to refute them with his logical syllogisms and so on. Um, Another good example is that there's a later satirical work in which Psalos and Italos are shown going to the afterlife and they meet all of these Greek scholars of antiquity and they try to go over and sit with the philosophers. And Italos is just laughed out of court by these ancient philosophers and told to go away. And he goes Hmm. away weeping and lamenting. And they're by contrast, very polite to Pselos, but they don't actually offer him a seat. So he has to go over and sit with the ancient rhetoricians instead of the ancient philosophers, which is a, a really nice example of the way that these two figures were seen by figures a few generations later. Um, so as far as Solos' own writings goes, go and how he makes sense of pagan philosophy, one thing that we can say is that he does not hide the fact that these authors wrote works that were pagan in content. In particular, uh, so as I said before, his favorite philosopher from antiquity is uh is actually Proclus and one way of dealing with Proclus would be to only talk about passages in which Proclus is doing kind of abstract philosophy in a way that doesn't make clear how pagan he is but rather than doing that Sello's actually wrote explicitly about works by Proclus where more pagan teachings come up and he is willing to go through these works and say what he's what he agrees with what's compatible with christianity and what isn't and he says well we should just reject this stuff that's incompatible with christianity and here he's following the lead of greek church fathers so going back to late antiquity again someone like gregory of Nazianzus, who he admires so much this was also the general policy of most greek church fathers so they would say we need to use this philosophical material and also non-philosophical material like Homer, for example, who's another author that Pselos comments on, we can look to this great literary tradition, philosophical tradition, and extract from it what will be helpful to Christianity, while rejecting what will not be helpful to Christianity. So my take on Pselos, which is not shared by all readers of Pselos, is that he was both very well disposed, so very favorable towards pagan philosophy, while also being a fully committed Christian theologian. So I think he's a pious Christian believer, just like pretty much all Byzantines, but he thinks that uh, at least someone who has his level of intelligence and subtlety as a reader of texts is going to be able to go into this pagan literary material and pull out the stuff that's good for Christianity while leaving behind what's false. So that seems to be his general approach.
0: Very good. Very good. Um, I think there's a lot um, to dig into with pselos uh, and with Byzantine philosophy. And I think we will have to end our discussion there, but fortunately <laughs> listeners can go and scoop up 10, 15 podcasts immediately from you on this topic and find out more, um, which is fantastic and I recommend they do. Um, Have you enjoyed studying um, Byzantine philosophy?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, So actually I always say that my greatest gift as a podcaster is being able to be incredibly excited about whatever I'm just (laughs) covering. And then even maybe even more important, I'm also able to forget it the minute I write the (laughs) script and record it and just move on to the next thing. So maybe I just have short attention span. But at the moment, I'm like, I think Byzantine philosophy is like the best thing ever. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, a year ago, I thought it was Latin Christian philosophy because that's what I was covering then. But I mean, maybe the the thing I would say about um, Byzantine philosophy is First of all, it's very continuous with what I do in my day job because uh, I'm a professor of philosophy in Munich and my main areas of research are ancient and uh, Islamic philosophy. So actually Byzantine philosophy is something that I always meant to look into more because it's really, really is just a continuation of Greek philosophy from late antiquity, which is something I've done a lot of research into. And I'm really convinced that historians of philosophy need to do more to take the contributions of late ancient, but also Byzantine Christian authors seriously. So there's this kind of, I think bizarre tendency in the the history of philosophy field to take, um, to, to go into and be willing to spend a lot of time interpreting late ancient pagan philosophers and also earlier ancient pagan philosophers. But as soon as the empire goes Christian, And you get, you know, Tertullian, Origen, Augustine, the Cappadocian, Greek church fathers, and so on. Somehow they are going to be the problem for theologians and church historians to worry about and not historians of philosophy. And I think that that's completely wrongheaded. So I actually think Augustine, for example, is one of the greatest philosophers of antiquity. And I think there's a lot of fascinating philosophical material in the Greek church fathers as well and also in Byzantine thinkers. And because this has been so badly explored in the history of philosophy, one of the things that I've been most excited about doing this part of the podcast is getting to cover something that will be unfamiliar to pretty much everyone who's listening to it, because there's almost nobody who knows about Byzantine philosophy. I mean, we are talking about a research field, which literally includes only a few dozen people worldwide. Uh, so, being able to draw on the works of those few dozen people and sort of synthesize them and present them to peop- to a wider audience, I think it's something that I'm very excited about. And actually, in a way, it's similar to your own podcast, because Byzantine history is something that a few experts know about, but it's not widely known at all. Um, I mean, I, I would bet you that, uh, you know, you could go out onto the streets of London and ask people to, you know, name one Byzantine ruler and they wouldn't be able to do it. Or they, it <laughs> might even be news to them that there was a Byzantine <laughs> Empire, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And so getting the word out about this really major civilization, which has very important, a very important legacy for Western Europe as well, I think is really vital. And so I think it's, it's um, been really, uh, for me, great to have a chance to integrate that into my project.
0: Fantastic.
1: Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast
0: and uh, all our best with all the philosophy to come. Thanks for having me.